0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everyone. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, I'm delighted. To welcome you to today's event on the protection of gender and sexual minorities during armed conflict. I'm Dr. Joseph Sani, USIP Vice President, leading the Africa Center and the USIP Justice, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Initiatives. USIP was founded by the US Congress more than 30 years ago with a mandate to prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflict worldwide. Today's discussion is of particular significance to the Institute's ongoing work and commitment to justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, which constitute the foundation of peace This discussion is also of direct relevance to USIP's long-standing work to advance the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. The Women, Peace and Security Agenda has at its heart, a commitment to safeguarding the security, dignity, and meaningful participation of all persons. Last week, the new United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk expressed in his first press conference, deep concern over the unparalleled, I quote, pushback, unquote, on women's rights across the world, as well as the increasingly violent repression of civic leaders and erosion of civic space. The gendered nature of such backlash, invariably also means heightened risk for gender and sexual minorities, especially in context of violent conflict. It is therefore particularly timely and important to have a report that gathers and analyzes evidence on the differentiated and disproportionate impact of armed conflict on lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and gender diverse persons as well as the mechanisms and resources available to prevent and address these harms. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Victor madrigal Borros, the author of the report to the UN General Assembly that we will be discussing today. Mr. Madrigal-Borlars is an independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity to the UN Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. He began his three-year term as independent expert in January 2018, and is the second appointee to serve in this capacity. Mr. Madrigal Bollos is a Costa Rican jurist, currently in residence at Harvard Law School's Human Rights Program as a senior visiting researcher. Prior to this, he served as the Secretary General of the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims. As a member of the UN subcommittee on the prevention of torture from 2013 to 2016, he was a rapporteur on reprisal and oversaw a draft policy on the torture and ill treatment of LGBTI persons. His career in human rights and international law is extensive and distinguished. It is an honor to have you here with us Madrigal. The floor is yours and thank you.
2: Thank you very much. I am delighted and it's a singular honor to be able to be uh, having this conversation today. And of course, uh, to Joseph Sani uh, and to the United States Institute for Peace, uh, as well as Kathleen, uh, London and Andrew, my word of thanks for being part of this panel. Um, I'm delighted that we're actually taking the invitation to carry out this uh, conversation forward. Um, The mandate of the independent expert was created with the purpose of giving visibility to the way in which violence and discrimination occur in the everyday life, Of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and other gender diverse persons, it was created with the idea that it would carry out thematic research and gather evidence, analyze it, and place uh, that analysis to the service of the international community. The idea is that this research, this conclusion, this analysis forms uh, some form of building blocks, narrative concepts that are used by state and non-state actors um, in the construction of their uh, work and their strategies aiming at the eradication of violence and discrimination. And the creation of the mandate reveals a singular and extremely important will of the international community, is to acknowledge that sexual orientation and gender identity are important factors in the analysis of violence and discrimination and in the understanding of the agendas to further human rights peace and security and development, which of course are the foundational um, objectives of the United Nations. This particular report was born out of the need revealed to me in a consultative process carried out in 2020, in which over a thousand persons and organizations and states participated, in which the constant message was that on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, there's myriad uh, violations that occur during armed conflict, a context in which there's also an exacerbated um, functioning of uh, stigma, discrimination, and violence. And yet, the argument before me, the contention before me was that there's very little evidence and that it has been historically not uh, a common trait that this, uh, the way in which these characteristics, this grounds actually interacted with violence and discrimination during armed conflict uh, have not been studied regularly uh, within the dynamics of conflict. The idea of course is to understand how gender-based uh, approaches and frameworks, that uh, th- those frameworks that provide sharp lenses for the understanding of asymmetries of power and violence and discrimination, how they are to be understood in the dynamics of conflict, which of course very much relate to that idea of power and the way power manifests uh, itself. Uh, it is. It was also quite important to recognize and study how um, populations, communities, and uh, peoples historically affected by discrimination and violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity would be part of the processes of peace building and peacekeeping. And this report, which actually was carried out as a result of a consultative participative process in which I uh, called for inputs uh, from the international community Uh, was eventually uh, published and presented to the Third Committee of the General Assembly two weeks ago. And I'd like to take a few minutes to take you through what I believe are three main analytical threads that this report presents to your consideration. The first one is um, the threat concerning the evidence as to how conflict-related violence impacts and has intersection with sexual orientation and gender identity. And in this connection, I was able to draw five general conclusions in relation to that evidence. The first one is that sexual orientation and gender identity are present. We see shreds of evidence in any conflict uh, that one sheds some light into. We were able to gather some examples, not only as to how the real or perceived sexual orientation and gender identity of victims was at the root of certain forms of violence, but also very importantly, how preconception and stigma played a role in the design of certain forms of violence Mm -hmm. during armed conflict, which were designed uh, to inflict damage in enemy forces by parties in conflict through the mechanism of demoralization or inflicting uh, psychological damage. And Therefore, the report presents a number of those examples. Uh, I can pick up a few right now, such as the shreds, and I insist these are shreds of evidence coming uh, from the Bosnian war, where allegations including the use of uh, homosexual behaviors uh, and imposing them on uh, persons uh, to the effect of uh, utilizing stigma and discrimination to the purpose of uh, humiliate, uh, expunging uh, genitalia to the purpose of eliminating the feature that is in particular supposed to be definitional as to what the male uh, in a particular context is. And finally, um, we have some evidence that were found by the United Nations fact-finding mission in Libya Um, as to the use uh, by particular flag fractions in conflict, uh, in particular to um, reaffirm uh, and underline certain notions concerning masculinity under Salafist Salafist views. So from that thread of evidence, the conclusion that one could draw, uh, which becomes a working theory as well, is that um, there is a tactical use of sexual orientation and gender identity, and the preconception and stigma that are attached therein. But we also know, in a second thread, conceptual and analysis thread, that um, during armed conflict, there's also the feature of exacerbated violence and discrimination that was occurring uh, before the conflict, or that responds to dynamics of stigma, criminalization, and pathologization. And therefore, we see some examples of the way in which during conflict structures of criminalization are favored as ways of persecuting communities and populations, particularly when it comes to ascertaining certain domination over territories and exercising narratives of domination over certain communities. We see it also not only in the dynamics of conflict but also in relation to opportunistic behaviours during situation of crisis, so has been the case in Afghanistan with uh, the recent uh, takeover of the Taliban and also opportunistic use of humanitarian and emergency measures, such as is the case of the evidence that we have seen coming from COVID-19 response and recovery. And all of these features which replicate themselves in armed conflict and um, humanitarian situations that ensue have in common with them uh, this um, exacerbation of uh, the situation of inequality um, an extreme inequality in which LGBT persons arrive to armed conflict. And we can think in this connection, um, with examples, for example, that relate to economic precariousness, excessive reliance on informal sectors that are the first to be uh, affected during conflict. And of course, inability to rely on, uh, financial, uh, or other top type of support uh, facilities, uh, and of course, support networks that include, in very many cases, the community and the family. Um, the union of these tactical um, and structural factors also allows uh, for the uh, working theory, which I examine in my report about the strategic use of sexual orientation and gender identity and connected preconception and stigma in relation to um, overarching political uh, and rhetoric um, strategies during conflict. And I think this is particularly uh, relevant and uh, very recent when we see, um, some of the political discourses that have been, uh, coming out in, uh, relation to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where, uh, LGBT issues are very insistently used to underline an alleged, um, Uh, resistance to uh, so-called Western agendas in relation to LGBTI issues and particular imposition of legal and social models in uh, occupied uh, sections and territories, which replicates uh, the way in which we saw those uh, patterns being implemented since 2014 in Crimea. And uh, of course, with the correlative uh, concerns uh, within the population and in particularly LGBT persons in a particular context. The findings of the independent international mission in Myanmar are another example in which in particular the population of trans women and the uh, affectation that they have received of extreme violence and discrimination appears to be not only opportunistic and tactical, but also quite significantly um, um, strategic in its use as ways not only to inflict and enforce certain gender norms, but very importantly as ways to create certain notions within the population. As a result of these patterns, uh, my report also highlights my concern about the systematic exclusion of LGBT peoples from um, available uh, humanitarian corridors and other type of humanitarian and crisis facilities, including very important medical facilities and safe homes. I was horrified to learn from an activist in Ukraine that in the whole territory in which customarily LGBT people are not admitted or expelled from shelters, During uh, this conflict, there there have only been uh, 16 beds dedicated specifically to LGBT persons in a conflict of the magnitude that we know exists. And I think that this will provide you with an idea of that very particular form in which social exclusion impacts then at the receiving end of this type of uh, not only exclusion, but placement in situations of extreme risk points 4 and 5 relate to some of the conceptual conclusions in my report the first one relates to a concept that i have called instrumentalization of prejudice which comes from uh, a series of experiences um of field experiences the most recent of which is the colombian peace uh, and truth uh, process, and in relation to which a term called violencia por prejuicio, or translated uh, directly, uh, violence by prejudice, I've now picked up that term and I have translated it in my report as instrumentalization of prejudice, and I believe it reflects the idea that in armed conflict we see certain features of the way in which sexual orientation and gender identity are utilized. As I have expressed strategically and tactically, as warring um, techniques uh, to inflict damage in opposing parties uh, and to inflict uh, and uh, create and underline certain gender norms to the purpose of creating legitimacy and sometimes buyout for territorial uh, domination. Um, Instrumentalization of prejudice has been um, articulated best, in my view, uh, in the Colombian case, but already one could see Uh, indicia of it being uh, expressed by the group of eminent experts in Yemen, by the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission in Peru as well, and in all of the cases it alludes to this use uh, of the symbolic impact of violence, the use of um, structures of um, Uh, relation of um, social contexts within the very specific ways in which violence is exercised, and um, the hierarchical and exclusionary purpose of violence itself. The last concept that I, that I explore in relation to this line of thinking is that of the very specific catalogues of violence, which can be identified precisely in connection with the context, and which depending on particular uh, context will include um, from uh, manifestations of a social exclusion to uh, heinous uh, violations. Uh, the most, one of the most uh, heinous examples of which is rape, so-called corrective inflicted on lesbian women. Um, of which I received uh, multiple uh, allegations of occurrence in armed conflict in different latitudes of the world, including uh, or passing through other violations such as torture and mistreatment, uh, forced nudity, beatings, uh, and um, so on and so forth. In all of the cases, what appears to be crucial here is that the identification of catalogs of violence also allows for the further work in which truth and uh, uh, reconciliation or truth commissions carry out their work uh, in identifying patterns which in themselves to uh, the identification of indicia and working theories which can then be tested in judicial venues. Uh, that is so, so so much in what concerns this uh, evidence that was made available to me through the submissions in the report. All of this evidence then needs to be placed in the key of regulatory frameworks that are available in international law to the treatment of these issues and in in particular to the accountability in uh, atrocity and conflict. and uh, There are four uh, frameworks that have points of connectivity in relation to this type of situations and those are uh, of course international humanitarian law, international human rights law, international criminal law, refugee law and one international public policy framework which is the peace and security agenda with its extraordinary flagship the women peace and security agenda and i in my report have examined the way in which these frameworks can be seen as competing or excluding each other or as i conclude Um, based on the robust findings of a number of treaty bodies and independent experts as well as regional bodies on the necessary complementarity of these bodies of law, but also very importantly on the uh, fact that uh, sexual orientation and gender identity have not yet been explored to the full extent that is necessary in frameworks of international humanitarian law in which, uh, as the Secretary General of the United Nations has explained, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity appear to be blind spots in that particular framework, Um, and of course in international human rights law where there are a number of instruments, starting, of course, uh, in the visionary work carried out from Vienna and Beijing and the incorporation of gender um, in these frameworks, which is complementary and are complementary in themselves to the work that has been made to advance gender-based frameworks in international criminal law, and in particular, through the gender policy of uh, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court that, as we know, gives context to the application of um the rather outdated definition, uh, and perhaps not so contextualized, present in the Rome Statute. The report also goes uh, specifically to an exploration of uh, the peace and security uh, policies and agendas, and concludes that the implementation of gender frameworks that are uh, ample and inclusive, allow the recognition and dealing with the particular issues that the report has identified. This connects with what is a rather Um, heated debate at the moment in international fora, which is the extent and the scope of these gender frameworks, and in relation to which I'm very much hoping that this report will make a further contribution in addition to the reports on gender that have been issued by uh, the report in previous years. Um, The fundamental conclusion there is that this extraordinary agenda that has done so much to place the disproportionate impact on women and girls, uh, and of course that already includes lesbian, bisexual, trans women, uh, is also a crucial tool to identify the way in which gender preconception and stigma affects and creates this type of strategic and tactical opportunity that I have Uh, created evidence and gathered evidence of in my report. Um, I'd like to dedicate uh, a last sentence um, to uh, the important work uh, that is gathered and that has allowed some of this evidence and findings and its The work, of course, in peace building and peacekeeping, and that, as we know, is highly contextualized to every political process. Uh, The report includes an inventory of some of the processes in which elements of gender-based frameworks and recognition of sexual orientation and gender identity are present, and uh, concludes uh, in the observation of the most recent example, which, as we all know, is the Colombian process, uh, in which a gender-based approach not only created, in my view, an incredible opportunity for revealing the texture and the nuance in which communities and populations were affected, not least among them women and girls, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and gender diverse persons there in uh, intersecting or additioning, but also created a very significant opportunity to recognize the uh, value of the collective experience of these communities in the peace-building effort. Because let us remind ourselves that these communities have very specific mechanisms of resilience and of uh, community-based work that can be significant uh, um, uh, contributions to these processes. Um, as we know, the gender-based approach in the peace process was one of the most exploited uh, features in the proce- in the political process that led to uh, the referendum through which the uh, accords were not um, taken forward. And yet, the current Colombian government, I'm delighted to let you know, uh, declared publicly in a core in a, a core group event at the United Nations that I had the honor to chair, that they are firmly committed to taking forward the agreements uh, with their gender-based approach and uh, all of the commitments of which. Uh, in relation to which there's several dozen that relate to gender-based frameworks and um, several dozen as well concerning the rights of LGBT persons. This is the um first foray of my mandate into this uh extremely specialized, extremely rich area that exists at the intersection of uh, of, of all of these frameworks of international law and policy. And I was mentioning uh, in a preparatory session to um, all of our distinguished colleagues in the panel that I meant it to be a conversation starter, because I understand that it's a conversation that requires to be placed and taken forward in the political and legal fora at the United Nations. As I said at the beginning, I wrap up as I began expressing my delight and the singular honor that is for me to be present in this conversation today. And I thank you so much uh, and will be delighted to take part of the subsequent exchange. Thank you very much.
0: Victor, thank you so much. Uh, Victor Matrigal-Borlaz, the UN Independent Expert on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. We are now going to open it up to our uh, discussants to uh, respond to uh, some of the key factors that Victor has laid out in what he uh, talks about as a hidden debate around uh, gender Uh, and sexual minorities. I'm joined here uh, this afternoon by uh, two very, very good colleagues, um, London Bell, who co-chairs the Executive Committee of the US Civil Society Working Group on Women, Peace and Security. She has been a member of the United Nations Association of the United States of America and the immediate past National Council Secretary she is also the 2020 African Descent Fellow for the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and was recently selected uh, to be at the opening session on the newly formed United Nations Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. I will then turn after London offers her immediate response to uh, Andrew Cheatham, my colleague here at the U.S. Institute of Peace, a senior expert working in our executive office. He is a lawyer by training, former United Nations official, a long history of success working in international affairs and highly complex and crisis environments, both in the Middle East and in Africa. And we look to both of them for their perspective uh, from their background and expertise. London, uh, the opening uh, comments are to you and then to Andrew. I will note that we will be also accepting uh, questions in the chat room. So we look forward to hearing from all of you as well. London, welcome. Thank you, Kathleen. I wanna start out by
3: thank, thanking Dr. Sine, um for his welcoming remarks as well. And Victor, uh, thank you so much. We are truly grateful for your work as the mandate holder and your truly groundbreaking report on protecting LGBT and gender diverse persons during armed conflict. And as a member of the US Civil Society Working Group on Women, Peace, and Security, I am very heartened by the opportunity today for an open dialogue on the intersectional gender approach to the Women, Peace, and Security framework. Work. I'm also very eager for our members and the broader community uh, to engage with you on your recommendations uh, on ways we can work to promote the rights of LGBT and diverse persons during conflict, and for our working group particularly to explore and create long-term strategies, um, specifically around coalition building to ensure the rights of LGBT and gender diverse persons, um, that the rights of gender diverse persons and LGBT folks are protected. And so I I have, I'm listening to your, um, your presentation today. I have one question that I'd like to start to ask you Um, In response to more calls on the intersectional gender approach to WPS, has there been any discussion on creating an additional UN Security Council resolution, specifically recognizing the disproportionate impact of violence based on sexual orientation and gender identity during armed conflict? If not, should we be having that discussion?
0: I'm going to hold uh, for a moment Victor on that and turn it to Andrew for his comments and also uh, initiation of any questions.
4: Thank you Kathleen and uh, thank you uh, to Dr. Sani for his opening remarks. Thank you London for for having me here with you and, and a special thanks to you Victor uh, for your remarks and, and all of your work as London said uh, as the mandate holder for this special uh, work done as they did, the independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. I think, you know, the support for your work uh, in the previous uh, High Commissioner w- was, was shown uh, visibly through the, the the work of the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights and and, and uh, President Bachelet was, was a champion of your work. Um, and that's clear. I think with the incoming uh, new High Commissioner, Mr. Volker-Turk, referenced by, by, by Dr. Sani, I think it presents uh, maybe an opportunity to to have um, uh, a discussion about how, um, and because of his his work in the Secretariat and his work with UNHCR and other parts of the, the organization within the UN, There may be opportunities to discuss in the context of your findings of your report, how action can be taken now in partnership with UN entities, but also, of course, the partners on the ground, uh, the civil society organization and the human rights defenders on the ground. And I would like to ask you about potential programs uh, in three main areas. One that looks at the real time threats that you, your report really uh, highlights the the nature of the violence, the spectrum of the violence that you you mentioned and how heinous it can be and and, and horrible it can be for people. And in that respect, I know you've done a lot of work in partnership with UNHCR. um, And UNHCR has done a lot of work on the policy and legal front to open up uh, space for asylum seekers. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how partnering on the ground in certain contexts, maybe some of the contexts you've mentioned in the report, um, might help the evidence gathering that you're doing to actually bring people out of these violent situations and, and help uh, opportunities for asylum elsewhere and protection. The second sort of forward-looking uh, programmatic element uh, that I would love to hear more about and discuss more about is this peace process work that you talked about. You've highlighted Colombia uh, as a great example. I've heard you elsewhere talk about Indonesia and the 2005 peace agreement and how that was an example of how there was not enough thinking and voices from the LGBT and gender uh, diverse communities in the process. So how do you see partnering with the Secretariat, the uh, Department of Peacekeeping Political Affairs, perhaps maybe UNDP, that's my former uh, entity in these peace processes to bring in these voices and actually make them transferable into the 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 as you mentioned in the report the transitional arrangements up to and including constitutional arrangements where these protections can be embodied and like you said in your remarks so that we can move away from the these structural components of, of violence against. Uh, uh, lgbt and gender diverse communities and then thirdly uh unfortunately i i think in a lot of cases despite the the um innate protections in, in international human rights law international humanitarian law and other legal uh, regimes that you highlight you've also of course highlighted the need for for further explicit development and protections in those legal regimes <laughs> Um, but also amidst armed conflict, as we know, especially within non-international armed conflict, where you have de facto non-state actors in an area, we find a special uh, violence against LGBT and gender diverse communities, and unfortunately, in those in those. Uh, situations, it's hard to enforce international human rights law and international community. So, this accountability framework and the evidence gathering that you're talking about is so important. I would like to want to hear what you maybe think about the new work and accountability generally, the broader framework. And you, as a great jurist, know uh, the the. The work that's being done, a lot of it spurred from the work in Ukraine on this network of of universal jurisdiction and provide and work on in extraterritorial arrangements for a web of accountability supported not only by the ICC and international bodies but also by. Uh, domestic courts around the world and how you might think that could play into the the evidence that you found. So I know that's a lot. We don't have to cover it all today, but uh, I, you just, it's such an important report and I just, it stimulated a lot of thoughts. Thank you very much.
2: Victor, over to you. Thank you very much. And uh, of course to uh, you, Kathleen, um, but also to London and Andrew for their very uh, insightful uh, remarks and, and the invitation to elaborate a little bit in relation to, to these issues. Um, I'll take them in uh, succession. Um, London's question related, uh, I think, to that very specific point of entry, which is uh, the United Nations Security Council. And um, on this, I, I'd like to make reference to three um main threads of information here. The first one is, I think that there is a whole set of opportunities that exist within the peace and security architecture, or at least what I know as the peace and security architecture, uh, that very complex uh, series of institutions and methods and mechanisms uh, that exist under the auspices of the United Nations. And of course, I see things from my vantage point, that of a United Nations mandate holder. So I imagine that that universe of many opportunities, and I have a little drawing here when I was sparring with one of, of my colleagues the other day about how those opportunities look. And uh If if you would look at it, it looks like an extremely messy drawing. And I think that it's not because I'm bad at drawing, it's because actually the system is quite opaque in itself. Um, And and of course it, it, it concerns the whole dynamic of the international community, the dynamics within the General Assembly, within actually specialized agendas and public policies, and all of the institutions of the UN family, all of which exist and carry out their programming in situations that may be of conflict, as well as the human rights architecture and the development architecture um, and committees and, and so on and so forth. All of those instances represent opportunities to bring these topics forward, but of course under a very specific set of rules which, as you know, are both under questioning because of uh, the fact that they were built perhaps for another time and another uh, number of dynamics within the international community, and are at the same time under threat, not because of positive forward-looking questioning, but because of very real threats of the international order as we know it. And the insertion of this theme in that architecture exists within the context of this extremely volatile political reality. And part of of, of of the work of of stakeholders and in particular state uh, states within the system is also to manage that political environment right so part of the questions that I have to myself is um i'm I'm I, I, one of the invitations that immediately I think you were thinking about london when when talking about this was the fact that there has been a number of you know one area formula at the very least that related to Um, uh, focusing on gay men by ISIL, um, uh, which was carried out in 2015. But the fact that it was an ARIA formula will give you very much the key as to what is seen, what was seen in 2015 and what I consider continues to be seen as the difficulties in bringing that issue forward in the most, let's say, formal settings of the Security Council. Now, As uh, my report finds, any analysis of violence and uh, subsequent accountability, reconciliation, and truth will be incomplete if there is not a comprehensive gender lens to it and within a comprehensive gender lens there are the realities of persons that are impacted by this type of violence and discrimination so the answer to your question and and i know you meant it a little bit more more broad the the specific answer to your question is i definitely think that we should be having that discussion aiming to bring that evidence forward in front of the Security Council, in front of the General Assembly, as I attempted to do myself, but we also know that there are significant obstacles to that uh, effect. And as that goes on, and as those obstacles manifest themselves, I also think that we need to look for openings within the rest of this very complex and opaque system. And there I wanted to make a second point. Um, You may be thinking London that I'm abusing uh, the extent to which you actually raised this question, but I I hope that it's uh, within that context that you raise it. I think the first one is that idea of the women, peace and security agenda uh, being in and of itself a main vehicle for forwarding inclusive, comprehensive, uh, truly adequate uh, gender-based uh, frameworks and, and conceptions. And uh, I think that that can be done without losing the uh, importance uh, and absolutely essential historical context of the placement of women and girls' in the center of the political debate, but also acknowledging that there are other existences that are impacted by the very same mechanisms. And because the mechanisms are at the origin, I think that that there's an importance there. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight is the fact that a lot of this conceptualization, a lot of these building blocks come from the human rights machinery. And as uh, you may know, Uh, New York-based structures are famously, famously um, resistant in some cases to the permeation, if that word exists in English, to those building blocks in the human rights machinery. So I think part of the work is to ensure that there is a coherence and a complementarity. And that includes very much the receptiveness of the Security Council, as a body that understands that human rights-based approaches are at the base of sustainable peace building and peacekeeping and security. Uh, In that sense, what we speak about when we talk about a human rights-based approach is non-discrimination, participation, empowerment, and accountability. That is what What basically constitutes a human rights-based approach. And the second that you place it there, I'm sure that those are words that are very familiar to the Security Council, but I think that uh, the mystical uh, nature of the term human rights sometimes doesn't do us a great service in this connection. Um, And again, thank you, London, for for so generously allowing me to expand views in relation to this issue. Uh, I look forward to continued work in the in the uh, security and peace agenda. And uh, again, I think that the Security Council should assume its role as uh, bringing together all of those concepts Um, that allows me to Go to the main political actor that actually uh, will have a stake in relation to this, which is, of course, the uh, I think uh, uh, this person is called in the United uh, States uh, media sometimes as the human rights chief uh, of the United Nations, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and uh, the appointment of Volker Turk, former Under Secretary General for Policy in New York former assistant, uh, 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 high commissioner uh, at UNHCR is um, a very, very welcome development for everybody working uh, against discrimination and violence. And because of his particular knowledge of mechanisms that drive discrimination and violence in relation to sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, a, a most welcome um, a addition to this architecture. Um, High Commissioner Turk and I have been working together in uh, an agenda that he announced last 17 of May, which is the overarching United Nations LGBT strategy for inclusion, and which has as purpose replicating the type of very positive experience that he presided of uh, within UNHCR and uh, extend it to all of the uh, members of the United Nations family at the political level, and then make it uh, give the means to have it percolate in the programming action of agencies in the United Nations and as you can imagine this will include the peace and security architecture because one of the fundamental elements when you speak with the peace building support office in new york is you realize how quickly the peace building fund the peace building commission the thematic work of the peace building support office all merge and go to uh, the particular work of United Nations agencies, those that work in the humanitarian field, those that work in crisis, those that work in emergency, but also those that are working in the operations, to re-establish, to establish resilience, and uh, so on and so forth. So I think that there's a great, great uh, possibility there. And um, as as you can imagine, Andrew and, and other colleagues in, in this conversation, um, one of the most important experiences that we can draw on is the one created by Directive 9 uh, at the UNHCR, which so effectively brought the specific concerns of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and gender diverse, forcefully displaced persons to the forefront of the work of qualifying officers, interviewing officers, political uh, authorities uh, across borders, and within the playbook of UNHCR. I always say to, uh, to the High Commissioner for Refugees that one of my most extraordinary uh, experiences when I visit the ground is meeting with the colleagues of UNHCR. They will always have their booklet on General Directive 9 or, or Directive 9 in the in the desk. And I find it to be one of the most extraordinary experiences of mainstreaming uh, the concerns on sexual orientation and gender identity. Andrew, you mentioned quite accurately, I mean, you ra- you ran the gamut of concerns that we need to work together in and I'm very grateful to you uh, for that. Uh, You oxygenate my thinking, which is delightful. You, You connected all of that with evidence, And we know that one of the most difficult issues, uh, nobody, nobody will take issue with you colleagues. If you say, oh, we need to get more evidence, we need to get more data. Um, In New York, uh, that was kind of the, the, the word that came in every meeting that I had for the last three weeks during my appearance to the General Assembly. But the question is, how do you enable the structures to gather evidence? When it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity, How do you gather evidence in the 68 countries that criminalize homosexuality? How do you gather evidence not only because you are in a situation of conceptual self-incrimination when you ask people about who they live, what their sexual behavior is, um, how they self-identify, and so on and so forth, but also very importantly, how do you create the trust with the civil society that has the data, has been gathering it for decades, that that data will not be used in a detrimental way. The concept of non detrimental reliance of data gathered in these exercises is a fundamental part of the equation. And uh, in the process of preparing this report, I uh, listened with great concern to the way in which political volatility, which is exacerbated during conflict, of course, creates opportunities for extraordinary abuse. And so organizations that had in good faith shared some data to a government that ended up being party to a conflict, found themselves For that data to be utilized for the most horrendous of purposes, the second that the conflict actually uh, turned uh, a certain way against that particular actor. So non-detrimental reliance, the rules for gathering data, the way in which data needs to be preserved and can be then uh, uh, in very many ways custodied is going to be part of the work. The other part uh, important in what you mentioned, Andrew, is Um, I shared with with some people the other day that uh, when the Ukraine conflict started, one of the things that came to my attention very fast was the difficulties of trans women who had not received recognition of their gender identity to leave the Ukrainian territory as they are entitled to, but... They were not able to because their documents did not correspond to their appearance. And we see this over and over again. And as you can imagine, when the conflict is and was ongoing, it was not the moment for me to recommend to the state that a training program be put in place for border guards. I think the government would have very, very... Um, understandably, said that my request was actually not timely or pertinent in that time. This is why it's important to have those structures in place before conflict and emergency happen. This is why it's important to give priority to the way in which people basically have the foundation of their relationship to the state. And this is why, uh, in what you were mentioning about not only the policy level, Andrew, but the implementation and the programming of that policy, we need to have these conditions in place because over and over and over again, we see them replicating and perpetuating exclusion and violations. Um, Kathleen I know I'm testing your patience but I promise you I'm only going to use two more minutes um, as I I imagine that we want to move to another uh, level in the conversation we have about seven minutes so oh you're so kind
0: (laughs) and I'm going to as I have the floor here as you add to the conversation um I would love to hear more about what has been the response of your report at the UN and, and other international actors. Where do you see openings at this
2: point? I'll leave I'll leave three minutes for that, and then I will use four to complete uh, the beginning of this conversation with Andrew, of which I'm delighted, of course. <clears throat> Indonesia is a very good example of how commun- the non-involvement of communities completely extracts the knowledge that they have about the dynamics and where the risks lie. And this relates, of course, to the particular of the agreement that allowed the preponderance of a certain understanding of Sharia in the Ache province that has uh, led to the most uh, horrendous violations against trans women in the Ache province, uh, in my view, because uh, there was no participation of these communities in an understanding of what that political compromise meant in practice. But I would also like to underline in relation to this that there is an importance in not only using the knowledge of communities about the factors that create risk, but also very important their knowledge about the particular way in which violations are replicated. One of the constant constant uh, informations that I received is that in conflict, when humanitarian assistance is provided and is delegated to community and religious leaders, there is a great risk that the provision of assistance is going to replicate the way in which discrimination operates at a community level. So myriad persons came to me and said, my family did not get the family support or food package because when I went to the top of the line, the community leader that was distributing said, yours is not a real family. And I'm not giving you this package because it's meant for families. And you see in a very concrete way how this structure of understanding what a family is, is actually manifesting itself in the way people have access to food or have access to hygiene. And I would submit. Andrew, that this is the reason of not having consulted the communities, what would be the consequences of delegating a certain type of community or religious leader or not requesting safeguards or providing an understanding of the way that the assistance would have to be provided. And you've alluded to all of these elements uh, in relation to this. Andrew, we're going to need to talk about the network of universal jurisdiction at a later time, but I can assure you, you have uh, conceptually invited me to many, many um, coffee cups of coffee or maybe even glasses of wine by just raising this concept of which I do have some uh, views, uh, some of which are very positive as to the possibilities. So let me just leave you with that uh, teaser there so that we can actually... Uh, take it forward. Uh, and a conversation to which, of course, uh, Dr. Sani and Kathleen and London are also very, very invited. Um, uh, to Kathleen Kunast, I would just like to say that uh, the reception of the report has been. Uh, I would say that there's three three key sentences that I would describe uh, for that. The first one is. Uh, There has been enthusiastic reception of both the political processes within the United Nations, so I'm talking the type of uh, peace building architecture, institutionalities, the UN uh, institutions, the, 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 the UN family members, Um, as well as, of course, as the processes led by the Secretary General. And in all of those processes, there has been, what I would say, uh, uh, enthusiastic reception by the placement of this issue in the agenda. Um, Placing it in the context of the larger community of states, I think there has been a very uh, um, vigorous and robust engagement by a group of countries that are not necessarily the only ones that um, support my mandate, uh, but also some of the countries that have suffered internal strife. So I was delighted, for example, by having a long conversation with Angola, the representatives of Angola, in my appearance to the third committee. Um, So there you have an example of a country that, in a very specific way, requested information as to how these tools could be useful to expand these uh, frameworks. I have vigorous engagement, of course, of the countries of the core group, which include a, a, a large community of states. My concern lies with the countries that continue to deny that sexual orientation or gender identities are valid points of entry. In the analysis of violence and discrimination, that continue to say that those words need to be taken out of public policy and regulatory frameworks, and that continue to deny that LGBT persons actually suffer violence and discrimination because they are LGBT persons, as well as a myriad other identities that they reunite in their bodies. And of course, I am inviting those states, to continue uh, be, being open to the evidence that I'm presenting them about the fact that their work and their accountability to their, the people living under their jurisdiction is going to be com- compromised if they don't actually take this into account.
0: Thank you, Victor. I think uh, you began by saying this is a conversation starter. We are going to hold you to the continued conversation that you have laid out today Uh, first of all we appreciate your dedication your courage and your persistence in your efforts to provide evidence uh, and the importance of gender inclusivity for uh, both sexual orientation and gender identity dynamics so thank you for taking the time today with uh the U.S. Institute of Peace. I want to thank my colleagues London Bell and Andrew Cheatham, Joseph Sani, and all the people behind the scenes that helped make this program today a success. Thank you, and uh, we will end our uh, conversation, but only look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to this event.